0: Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence, a real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join our hosts, Phil Dark and Dr. Karen Atchison.
1: Hey guys, welcome to the Think Orphan podcast. This is Dr. Karen. Thanks for joining us today. We are back from the refugee crisis series and we are getting back on track with our kind of typical podcasts and we have a great guest today. Phil, who do we have today? Yeah, today
2: we have uh, a great friend, Mike Doris. He's the president of Orphan Outreach. This guy, if you know anything about orphan care, you probably know Mike, or at least know his name. He's been doing this for four decades, and that, that's just a really long time. Um, that's, that's longer than Karen's been alive. Um, it's almost as long as I've been alive. And, you know, it's, it's so good to hear from this man because he's been through it. He's been through the ebbs and flows. He's been through different trends. He's been through a lot of debates. He's been through so, so much. And the amazing thing about him that I've absolutely loved getting to know him is his humility. He doesn't come with a, an iron fist. He doesn't come with a, I know everything he comes with. I'm continually learning. I've been doing this for so long and I still don't know. And I, I love people who have no problem saying, I don't know. And then try to figure out, you know, the answers to those, to the questions that they don't know the answers to. And that's, that's Mike. And so you have the pleasure out there to hear from this man. If you don't know him I'd and you have a chance to get to meet him anytime and sit down with him, take it do whatever you got to do to clear your calendar to be able to do that with this guy. Cause I was blown away um, by his interview as I'm always blown away by my conversations with this guy because he comes with such wisdom and such knowledge with humility. And it's, it's so, it's so attractive and it's so encouraging and it's so much gives you wisdom that you can take and do your work with it. So here it goes. Well, Mike, Mike, it is great to have you here. We are here at the KFO Summit uh, 2017 here in Nashville. And I am so excited to be in a room with you because most of these are over Skype. So this is a lot of fun for me to be able to actually sit across a room and, and hear from you. And especially with, with all the years um, that you've been doing this, I, I'm just I'm very uh, encouraged by your life and encouraged by the man you are. And so I, I would love for you to just be able to share a little bit with our audience. For those who don't know who you are, um, just who you are, who you work with, and, and what you've been doing the last, you know, four decades or so.
0: Well, uh, Mike Duras, and I'm president of Orphan Outreach. Uh, we've uh, actually been in existence for 10 years, just celebrated our 10th year anniversary. Um, I've been working in orphan care for about 44 years. And uh, have just had an amazing journey. Uh, how God has led me down certain paths and certain experiences with kids. And if uh, you know people say, well, you look at your life in the rearview mirror, are you happy with it? And I could, I would do it all over again to be able to have the opportunity to be involved in kids' lives for that long and see many of them grow up and now married, have kids, and a few grandkids and. It's just an amazing blessing. Um, I'm also a board member on the CAFO uh, board. I'm one of the founding board members. And to watch CAFO grow uh, has been just an amazing, amazing thing to see God work in a movement like that. It was a new experience for me because I'm more of a simple childcare guy, you know, just doing work with kids. And then to be on this board and to see God do a movement within the church has just been an incredible Blessing to see, and it's been encouraging to me too. Has been here at KFO this uh, these last few days to see young leaders like yourself and others that are that next generation of leadership in orphan care. God is raising up some amazing leaders uh, for kids around the world. So you can you can see that God cares about these kids because He's bringing such talent and uh, and people who are just totally dedicated. To doing god's will in their lives um, i um, worked at an organization called buckner for 22 years i was vice president of buckner and had a lot of opportunity there to start uh, the international program for buckner we were the kind of the original group that got that going in 95 for buckner and and then led that effort for several years till i retired and then uh, my, my retirement plan uh, Came starting another organization, so uh, you know, not exactly what I envisioned, but uh, I would not change that for the world. And the other thing that I think is is amazing to see that when you're when you have mission like with orphans, uh, it's it's a it, God not only calls you to a mission, but He He calls people to walk alongside you to accomplish that mission. And I've had the blessing of having uh, co-workers that I've worked with uh, for a couple decades that we have worked together in this journey. And uh, without any of those people in uh, in the mix, we would have never been as effective as we were. And so, uh, iron sharpening iron, uh, loving each other through watching our families grow up, but also going through all the challenges that you face when you work uh, with orphans. So right. it's been a real, real blessing.
2: Well, yeah, no. And I, I know that, that that collaboration piece, I mean, as you know, it's a big reason why we're doing what we're doing on this show. I mean, it's really to encourage people to work together and give people an understanding of who is around them and who the people are doing work. That's that's similar, different, complementary in so many ways, because we need each other. We, we absolutely need each other. Um, now, what just tell us a little bit more about what Orphan Outreach, you know, does in the lives of children every day and around in different parts of the world and where you're at.
0: Well, we're in uh, seven different countries um, in in Eastern Europe, Russia, Latvia, Ukraine, in Kenya, uh, India, uh, Guatemala, Honduras, and our program really has the wide range of the continuum that we su- we support, and then we also do run some programs ourselves. But our primary model is to strengthen national organizations and empower them to care for their own kids and so um, we uh, have residential programs we support we have um, schools in high-risk areas uh, that we support with a very strong community component Uh, we have foster care that we're engaged in Um, you know it's it AIDS programs uh, just the whole range of programs every country has an individual focus because every country has unique needs. And so our criteria for picking programs is, does that program, is that a program that's replicable? And and is it something that the country needs? Is it a, is it a gap program that the country needs in order to further their continuum of care and taking care of their kids? And so we don't pick a lot of programs per country. We really kind of focus on... And uh, nothing and I, I know all programs do quality, uh, but you know we don't really worry about how big we are. We worry about how Im- what kind of impact we're having on kids, and and that's how we measure our success is through the lives of those kids. Right
2: now, that's that's great. And
0: you can uh, can you give the website real quick
2: so people can go and check it out?
0: Yes, it's uh, www. Okay, that's
2: easy enough. Um, so. I want to ask you, I got you here in this room. You got a vast amount of wealth of knowledge, um, and wisdom for our, for our audience. And I just want to ask you a question from all your years of experience working in orphan care. Like you said, for four decades, um, working with Buckner, working with orphan outreach. Uh, what, what have you really learned over the years? Kind of some takeaways, seeing that, as I as we talked about before the interview, interview your, your life is a longitudinal study in the orphan care movement and how, how it goes from organizationally as well as movement with KFO. What have you seen that we can learn from?
0: Well, you know, when you work in a, in a field for as long as I have, um, I remember Yogi Berra once said, uh, it's deja vu all over again. And there's a real sense of that in, uh, in orphan care because some of these uh, big debates that we have, which are all very valid and, I think, improve our quality to debate and have, have construction or constructive um, discussion on, um, have been going around for a long time. And so I've seen the pendulum swing from one side to another side to another side, and there's always these new trends, you know, and some of those trends are really good for kids, and, uh, but some of them are repackaged. And so, you know, you think of certain trainings that are popular and, and all that. Well, you know, some of those train the, the fundamentals of those trainings, we did 20 years right. ago, but it was called something else. Right. And, but people don't have that, that perspective. But what it does is it validates good practice because if you see those principles being echoed again and again and again, the things that don't work fall off. Right. And the things that do work stay on and they get enhanced as you move along. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, it, it, it's a matter of, you know, it's always good to stay current and see what the new research is saying and to improve on the processes that we that we uh, use in working with kids.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I think one of the things we've talked about as well is that theory practice gap that we have, right? That, that we have people that are doing phenomenal research, but often they're, they're distanced from the, from the field and from the day-to-day minutia. And so I think that's where a lot of the debates come from. And I think a lot of the vitriol and a lot of the anger and a lot of the, you know, that you see sometimes, unfortunately, because we should be on the same team loving each other, but instead we're arguing with each other. And what I've seen, and I, I'm seeing you nodding, so I think that you've seen as well, a lot of that does come from that theory practice gap. And I, what I'd love to do with you is just take a few different things that, that we know are debates, and i just love to hear from you on what you've seen. And we're not going to come to the, the answer, so if you're looking for that out there, I'm sorry, we're not going to have that for you this morning. But let's take residential care, for instance. And, you know, we have so many studies that have been done on that and, and really what you see with studies to the issue, a lot of times you see are the, uh, the idea of the success measures and definitions and all of that determines what the study will, will find out as well. But it's, it's always distanced from the, the actual on the ground. And so can you speak to that for a bit as far as, um, let's take residential care and, and the debate and how you've seen that kind of play out over, you know, over time, but also today.
0: Well, the residential debate is an interesting one because it's, uh, it's probably of all the topics that we discuss is the push toward family care and permanency and what role does residential play in that, if any. Mm-hmm. Some would say it has no role because right. it's a bad model. Um, you know, residential care has been with us for a long time historically, but it grew significantly during the 1800s. And you had uh, Oliver Twist and a lot of uh, news reports, investigative reports that went into residential care in the 1800s that generated a lot of negative press because they were not run well mm-hmm. and, and it, there were a lot of abuses that happened. And so you had the big commission with Teddy Roosevelt, at the White House in the early 1900s where you had advocates saying we need, to, uh, we need to do away with this residential model and we need to really support families. And it actually was the seed that started the welfare movement and giving payments to families to keep families together. And Teddy Roosevelt, I mean, uh, Franklin Roosevelt actually institutionalized that in a welfare system Mm. and started that process. And then it expanded in the 60s. So I entered into this field and, you know, in the 70s. Right. And there were a lot of those old institutions left. Um, I was, actually went to work for Buckner in 1985, hmm. and there, they were formed in 1879, wow. and have been a blessing to kids for a long time. Yeah. But I, one, of, one of the jobs, I had multiple jobs there during the 22 years I was there, but one of them was I was the administrator of the large campus, on the, the original campus in Dallas. Oh, wow. And so we had almost 400 children on campus, uh, we had some programs out in the community, a little foster care, a little this and that, but it was primarily a residential program. And I remember in the early 90s, uh, Newt Gingrich came out with a really big uh, statement because he was doing welfare reform at the time under the Clinton administration. And so he, the big question again came up, well, you know, what are you going to do if you cut back on welfare? What are the, you know, these kids? What are we going to do about all these kids? And he said, well, we need to go back to the orphanage days. And he quoted Boys Town as the the example, you know, that we need to know more Boys Towns around. And so that created a huge debate. Well, at that same time, at Buckner, we were on the campus, we were tearing buildings down and changing our model to more of a a full continuum of care, reducing the size of our residential program and doing family preservation, expanding foster care, things of that nature. And so the Dallas Morning News picked up on it, and then CBS News picked up on it. We were on the national news, and you know about okay, you got two competing ideas here. You have one that wants to expand residential, and the other, you know, then you got this program going completely the different direction. Right. And so you know, so that argument was really hotly debated in the '90s, and it kind of went away after welfare reform was implemented. But you know, when I first started working for Buckner, we had an association in D.C. that was advocating to protect residential programs, and all the older institutions around the United States were part of that and to tr- try to protect that model. And most of those programs now are well balanced. Most of them have foster care programs, and they have less residential. And so the swing seems to be, you know, well, it's either or, right. That, you know, you either have to have you're against residential or you're for residential. And my position is you need it all. Mm. Uh, You need the full toolkit because, you know, having worked with kids as long as I have um, on uh, on the Buckner campus, for example, we would have kids that were doing great in group care. And we'd say, okay, it was a great time. We can step them down into foster care now, mm-hmm. and we put them in foster care. And within two months, they would disrupt the children, mm-hmm. the family, mm-hmm. and they would it would disrupt the foster care placement. And the reason was a lot number of kids are just not do not want or do not really fit well into a family setting they can't take the intimacy because of their past and the the damage that's happened or whatever the factors are and they do better in group care and uh, they it's much more effective and so I think you know to me I, the part that frustrates me in the argument uh, is that we tend to want to have a philosophy that fixes it mm-hmm. and you know we don't, you know, I think what we need to have is, is care that meets the needs of the kid. What should drive it is not a philosophy, but what should drive it is what does a kid need? Uh, what's going to be in their best interest? And right. I think residential has a place in the continuum. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that I've been to residential programs and have run residential programs that were an incredible blessing to kids. Mm. Uh, I think it is overused in countries. Mm-hmm. they're over dependent on it uh, but at the same time, I think that uh, this there's a quest right now you hear a lot of this that the measure of success is how fast we empty out the orphanages. Mm-hmm. But the issue is that when you when you make that your goal and you don't develop the resources and the programs you need to support the kids to where they're going, right. you end up hurting kids more than helping kids yeah. and so you need to me a blend of it all and even today in our country and as much as we tout foster care is a good alternative for out-of-home care our foster care system is broken yeah absolutely and our prisons are full of kids that mm-hmm. you know are people that had grew up out of the foster care system now it doesn't make foster care a bad right program it means right. it may not be administered right or kids were mis- <clears throat> misplaced the uh, that wasn't appropriate but even now today, we have residential programs. In Texas, for example, uh, we have kids that are sleeping in caseworkers' offices because they can't find a place for them to go. Mm. And most of the residential programs over the last 20 years have either downsized significantly or they're gone. Right. So there's no place to put kids in the meantime until you figure out where they're going to go. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's uh, some of our discussions because of philosophical reasons um, limit the ability to care for kids and meet their needs because we're trying trying to eliminate a certain type of care. Yeah, and I think we need it all. We need the full toolkit Absolutely. in helping with kids.
2: No, yeah, and I, I think that that's something that we talk a lot about on this. I, I, you made me think of an interview I did with Rebecca Knapp where she said. You know, I agree with that, that we need the whole two clip, but we really need to have real assessments of each child. And I think you would agree 100% with that. And and sometimes that gets lost in this, that people think, oh, you're a huge advocate for orphanages. I'm not going to listen to you because I disagree with you. That's not what you're saying. You're saying that every child is different. And anybody who has more than one kid, anybody who has one kid and sees other kids realizes that, right? I mean, you can have the same gene pool and I have five biological children and every one of them is totally different. Right.
0: one of the programs that uh, we developed at Buckner was one of the first assessment centers in Texas. It may have been the first, I can't remember, but close to the one of the first ones developed. And so kids that came out of the CPS system would come into our assessment center, and it was a multidisciplinary team. There was a physician, psychologist, psychiatrist, educational specialist, developmental specialist, social worker, all did... Batteries of tests and did families, you know, just complete battery of assessment, and the goal was because the breakdown rates in Texas were so high in foster care that we wanted to we wanted to really match kids better, and so we we did that, and over the la- the next two years we reduced significantly the breakdown rates in foster care because we put kids in the appropriate right. care that they needed, and a lot of it, even though we did a full assessment, one of the most important assessments. Was the child care worker, who was working with that kid for 30 days and knew how that kid ticked, right, right. and and said this kid's not ready for foster care yet. Mm. They need some more structure and and they need more intervention, right. but they possibly could move, be moved into foster care. Yeah. And one of the things I really feel like with this big movement of shutting residential down, <laughs> and I, this may be a little controversial, but I think foster care connected to residential programs is a really good model mm. because kids that are that are in residential and you start developing a foster care program when kids go into foster care and they disrupt they can go back to the residential and stay within the same milieu mm. they're staying within the same umbrella of people that they yeah. know that care about them right. and then you can work with them and then maybe look at another you know getting them back into foster care or determining they need group care right. but the whole goal what we want for every kid is permanency exactly. you know no one argues that if we could find a family for every kid that would be the ideal that exactly. you could be able to do that but the reality is that that's not gonna happen right I mean you know and and I had someone we'll say who it was but someone you know in a high position was telling me well don't you think God can provide a family for every kid and we don't need all this other type of care. We can just move them into follow- adoption. And I was like, you know, well, I think God could do that, right. but he hasn't done right. that. And so the we have to deal with the reality. Um, and Guatemala is a good example. You know, there's a big push for anti-institutionalization in, in uh, Guatemala. And there is an over-dependency in Guatemala in residential care. There's no doubt about that. But... When you look at, uh, for example, girls that are getting pregnant under the age of 15, yeah. there's 5,000 girls that get pregnant a year in that, in that category that have been abused, neglected, and trafficked. Guatemala doesn't have the capacity to, currently to handle all those kids. Mm-hmm. And so if you start c- closing down options for them before right. you develop resources, where are those kids going to go? So to me, you have to be realistic about the... Uh, the approaches that we use and how you get from point A from point B is as important as getting there.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Now, and I, I think it's so important to hear that and everyone out there listening, listen to what was said and don't get stopped when he said residential care. And it's, it actually is good because so many people do that. And we really need to listen to each other in this because there is there, you, you said it exactly right. Can God do it? God can do anything. That's like saying, well, I'm called to do this. It's hard to argue with that when you say when someone says that. So God can, of course God can do it, but we live in a broken world right now, right? You know, the fall happened and we need to realize that the fall happened and we live in reality. So how do we wade that reality while still keeping that gold standard excellence? We're reaching for this.
0: And, um, and also setting up systems that are set up well, Yes, because, uh, and I've been involved in setting up foster care in Russia, Latvia. Say Kenya, Peru, uh, Guatemala, and uh, Honduras. We're working with Honduras now, so several different countries have yeah. been going through this transition of trying to try and develop up develop foster care and to me how you man how you manage a program is as important as developing the program right. And what happens in many of these countries, they have, okay, we need more foster care. So they implement it, but they don't put enough resources into it. They don't have enough case managers or case management to family ratios are poor. Mm -hmm. There's not enough training. There's not good selection of families. You know, all those components are important for a successful program. And so then you get kids that are going, you know, but in their lifetime, 20 foster homes because Mm -hmm. it isn't, we're not managing the programs the way we need to manage them. And so to me... You know, I had a mentor that I, I'll never forget, you know, every one of us has those people that are poor angelized that had a lot of experience and he said, you know, the best way to make a kid better is being there day mm-hmm. after day after day mm-hmm. in a consistent way. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that that really is true, right. that, you know, a lot of kids, you know, even if they act out and they have problems, if you're there every day and you're being consistent with that kid. And you're, and you're providing good care, that kid's gonna get better. Yeah. And so we need foster homes that are doing that and trained it in how to do it well with excellence so that you can have a good outcome. Yeah. And my fear is for a lot of these countries is that they're being driven to destroy one type of care for, for a type of care they're not ready to handle yet. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so to me, I think we need to develop the alternative first and then get a balance of uh, moving those kids into that alternative. Right.
2: And I, I think everyone out there listening, I mean, we, we are, we're we we're coming close to the end of this interview because we got we to gotta move on to a couple others that got scheduled today. But I could go on with Mike for days and days on this, as I'm sure all you can. So those of you who are in those countries that Mike's already working in, I encourage you to reach out to him. And if you, even if it's a different country, he will be able to advise you just on these overarching principles that absolutely um, uh, apply really in every situation out there, just thinking through these things at these high levels while understanding that there's a reality that, that we're, that's in front of us. And I think one area I want you to touch on real briefly, we could talk on this for about six weeks, I think. And we, we have on many interviews, but I I'd just love for you to be able to share how you think we, as the orphan care community, particularly working with children can do mission trips well. Because uh, I think that's a that's a huge issue, obviously. But to really focus, not what's wrong, we hear what's wrong all the time. We, I think we're we're getting clear on that. But how can we do them well? What's a few nuggets you have for people out there?
0: Well, I I know there's a big anti-mission trip movement within orphan care, and uh, I will tell you that I'm I just I'm on the other side of that argument mm-hmm. because I think mission trips are are really they do two things. One is they they make people in the church aware in a real way what the issues are, to see if God's calling them for that mission. And secondly, what what helps kids get better is relationship. Mm-hmm. And and so we've got an AIDS program in India, for example, that we have a church out in uh, in on the west coast uh, that go that goes is really that's their their place it's a residential plus the community component to that program those kids love every people every person on that team they they are energized by the fact that there is a church that cares so much for them that they come every year Mm -hmm. and spend time with them they have pictures of these of the people up on a whole wall of every trip, and so mm-hmm. there's like hundreds of pictures on this wall, and they can go and tell you everybody's name. Mm-hmm. In fact, they said, you know, it's getting really expensive with the with the economy right now. Maybe we could raise enough money, we could go visit them. Mm-hmm. You know, that that connection, they feel like they're so important because this group from the USA is coming every year to care about them. Right. So, you know, when I, I remember one time being in a room with a, bu- a number of people that were really An anti-mission trip i was one of the few there that was more pro and so i just said you know um, how many people here got involved in orphan care because they went on a mission trip and everybody raised their hand and there's an argument that says well only 10 to 15 percent of the people that go on a mission trip actually stay engaged and give money and so is that an effective use of those dollars But the reality for us is that that 10 to 15% that stay engaged is 90% of the budget that we have to take care of kids. So to me, yes, there's bad practice with mission trips, undoubtedly. And we need to improve uh, how churches look at mission trips and how they can do them more effectively. But I feel like we don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater.
2: Absolutely. And I think that that's, that's it kind of the same principles apply that we talked about for the, you know, 15, 20 minutes on this interview about residential versus, you know, foster versus adoption, whatever it is. It's the same really to think about it, just because something has bad practices doesn't mean you throw it out. How can we do it well? And that's really what we're trying to get to with this, with this, with this. Well, uh, There's
0: a real popular book, out, which is a great book, by the way, Helping Hurts. Yeah. Okay. Right. And, um, uh, Brian and his co-writer did a great job with that. Very important book for people working in this space. I recommend everybody read it. But I would say, you know, I told us, our staff, I said, you know, <laughs> I think I'm going to write a book when helping helps. Because I feel like, you know, sometimes we get discouraged because you're like, well, I don't want to do anything to do any damage. And, mm-hmm. and and I've talked to a number of churches that, you know, they... They say, "Well, I read the book Helping Hurts, and we're going to buy those principles." But then, when they tell me what they're doing, they're not really doing great practice. Right, you know, right, they exactly. didn't quite quite get it. You know, yeah. and I think that that um, you know, I think that we need to be engaged in the mm-hmm. world, and kids need you know a physical demonstration of how they're loved, mm-hmm. and we need more soldiers in the field. Yeah. There's there's a lot of kids, uh, 150 million, that need need help. Mission trips, I think, is a vital part of that formula. But again, we need to do it with excellence.
2: Absolutely. And I, and I think, too, you talk about when helping hurts. Brian actually did a series after called Helping Without Hurting in Short-Term Missions. I know that Connected, and we'll have these on the show notes, Connected with Rebecca Nepp in, in Australia is putting together and has put together um, a great handbook on how to do mission trips well in connection with orphanages. And they're, they're really a, a, a leader in talking about the, the dangers and the, and the potential issues. And, and there are, and we've talked a lot about that on this show, but we're going to move on to our last couple of questions that we ask every guest. Um, the first one is what have you read, listened to, or watched, uh, that has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphaned and at risk children with excellence?
0: don't read a lot of necessary books on orphan care Mm -hmm. i I read yours i read uh, which is by excellent by the way (laughs) um and uh helping again helping hers is a i recommend that book for everybody Mm -hmm. um and i um you know there's uh the movie that just came out lion i thought was a very excellent movie on adoption and reunion what what adoption's about Mm -hmm. um and I think uh, it's it's an older documentary, but there's a documentary called "Born in the Brothels," and yeah. um, it yeah. won an Academy Award when it came out it's a great, several yeah. years it's a fantastic ago. Fantastic movie. Uh, it, it really, when you want it, it just gives you a great picture of some of the struggles that we face in orphan care. Because you know, we, in the West, we want to fix everything, and we say, you know, we go in and say, well, how do we fix poverty? And how do we, you know, I remember uh, Jeffrey Sachs wrote the book "End Poverty in Our Lifetime." And it's an excellent book. I recommend it. It's really got a lot of interesting things about how economics affects poverty. But we're not going to end poverty in our lifetime. Right. There's always going to be orphans until Christ comes back mm-hmm. because sin mm-hmm. is in the world. But God, God calls us to be light right. in the midst of that darkness. Right. To be, you know, to have kids have an opportunity to have hope. Mm-hmm. And that I think God calls us to be faithful, not yes. necessarily to fix stuff. Right. right. Right, those
2: are some great recommendations. I agree with them all. Um, the last question, what one person has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphaned and at-risk children with excellence?
0: Um, well, a guy that was really, really important in my life, early development was a guy named Johnny Wright and he was uh, vice president of Buckner and I worked worked underneath him. And uh, Johnny had a passion for childcare. Mm. I mean, he, you know, that's what he cared about, is providing quality care for kids. And he, I learned so much under him. Um, he, uh, a lot of the mantras that I you know pass on to my staff, I got from Johnny and right. and, um, and, and I think that's an important part of the movement. I think that those of us have been in the field for a while, even though we don't have all the answers because for some things, they, the answers are very elusive right. for some of the Absolutely. issues we face. But the knowledge that we do have and the experience that we have, I think we have an obligation to pass it on to those below. And so mentorship and finding those people that, that you can bounce ideas off of, that have kind of been through the, the fires, um, can really be helpful to the next generation of leadership. And that's mm-hmm. what I'm so excited about with CAFO again, is that right. that next generation of leadership that's coming up to help kids is just exciting to see.
2: Yeah, I agree. And, and what you guys can't see out there and what you, you can't know just from hearing, and you can probably hear a little bit of it, but just the thing that encourages me the most about Mike with amongst many, many things is the humility and the constant learning that you've been doing, even after doing, it, it'd be a lot, very easy for you to say, I got all the answers because I've been doing this for
0: so long. One thing I understand now that I'm older is I know how much I don't know. Exactly, <laughs> and there's and a lot. Learned,
2: I, I've been doing it just a short amount of time and I know I don't know a lot. So that's why I love doing what I get to do here and just learning from people like you. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you for what you're doing and just
0: thank you for our friendship. Oh, I enjoy it. Thank you.
2: Well, thanks again, Mike, for all those words of wisdom. And for these folks out there, I I hope you got a taste of why I I love this guy so much. Um, And I so look forward to getting to know him more and more over the years. Um, So, Karen, you know, coming from someone who really hasn't gotten to know Mike like I have, you know, what did you think of what, what he had to share?
1: I really, really enjoyed this interview. I have not met Mike personally, but I definitely have heard of him. Um, And I just enjoyed his, I like his confidence, but in such a humble way, he's like, yeah, here's. Here's the facts. (laughs) Um, I really appreciated the way that he presented his information, and um, yeah, it was just all around um, a great interview. One of the things that um, I latched onto a lot was basically, you know, hearing him say, "I don't know all the answers. I'm not saying this stuff is perfect, but here's what I do know. There are some situations that exist where kiddos thrive in these specific environments, and we, I can absolutely um, affirm that in in multiple ways. One of the things that I do um, in my my work. here in the States is I work with families who are in the process of um, dissolving their adoption. And that's a whole another topic. And that's a whole another series, even potentially. But the reality is that there are some children that actually don't thrive in families. And that is a controversial statement. And I own that statement that I just said there. Um, but I, I, I appreciated what he's saying. in that he's saying, yeah, there's some kids that actually, they do a little bit better in a residential treatment environment, especially when there's intentionality to form a relationship with that child. And especially here's the part that I want to emphasize. And the whole reason I even started talking about this is that he's saying, especially when you have workers and staff members who are trained to do it well. Mm. And that's the piece that is just such a heartbeat of mine is that training and consultation and Hey, no one's perfect. Everyone isn't going to have a license or, you know, expertise training in certain areas, but we can provide trainings and we can hope to get people on the same page with that intentionality of best practice models. And I know you're tracking with me on that too, Phil.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's funny you say that because every time I hear someone talk about training, especially in the context of psychosocial care, I actually think of you, Karen. I I, I think of because you pounded that so much into my brain when we were writing the book together, just, you know, training, 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 training. Yeah, they say they're trained, but they're not really trained. And, you know, it seems like, you know, different training means different things in different settings in different areas. And so that's something that, you know, when I hear that, it actually triggers that in my head, which I'm so glad. And that's why I love learning. It's why I love doing this this stuff together with other people is because, you know, I never would have thought about that before, you know, coming from, they don't teach that in law school, believe it or not. (laughs) Um, You know, but, but to hear it and to be able to understand that and to hear a guy like Mike talking about it from a guy who's not a, he's not a psychologist, he's not, but he's been doing this long enough to understand that he needs to find people who are smarter than him in those areas, who are trained in those areas, who are really understanding these kids and these, you know, case, as we talk about case by case, as we talk about intentionality, we talk about, that with the refugee crisis series intentionality and we need to be intentional on these things we need to be so um thinking about each of these kids not as numbers not as generalities you know we ha- we can't go you know to the general all the time you know i think there are certain things with frameworks there are certain things with you know we need to go into this thinking in that way in a little bit but these are specifics this what we're talking about is always a specific and that's something that is, is hard to, you know, theorize, right? It's hard to put a theory that, uh, that, unless you say your theory is that each of these kids are, you know, individuals who have amazing gifts and talents, right? So right. that's something that I think that he talked about, and it really went to a lot of everything that he said. You know, he talked about mission trips. He talked about, um, you know, residential care. He talked about just doing this work for a long, long time and all the different debates. And I think what he kept coming back to is, you know, intentionality and also case by case, right? Like we need to really look at what we're doing. I'm not saying all mission trips are good. I'm saying that there are some that are good. I'm not saying all residential care is good. I'm saying that there are certain instances. And that was something that I know he's going to rub people the wrong way. I know I can close my eyes and picture people that I know, personal friends who are going to be listening to this going, ooh, ooh, I don't like that. I don't like that. But my thing is... It's hard to argue with a guy who's been doing it for 40 years and who's really thinking through these issues.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And in that, he's talking a lot, too. I, I think that so often, especially for those of us involved in orphan care um Globally, or here in here in the states, or even just within your own city and your own state, a lot of times um, I think we are driven to, or we feel that pressure to make these big, overarching statements, or having what um, Mike talked about as this philosophy that fixes things, um, and and that's 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 great for a big picture type of understanding, but bringing it back to the fact that um, the care that we're providing, the the resources, the setting, um, that it really is a person centered type of philosophy. It is a person centered type of treatment that we have to look at each child in an individual way. And um, even the things that we have in place here in Louisville may not be what happens in rural Kentucky and the things definitely going to look different in LA and that's definitely going to look different in Thailand. And so being able to incorporate kind of the things that, that work within the culture. And I think I know someone that wrote a pretty good book about that.
2: Well, you, you were, you were a big part of that book as we talk about. So, uh, you know, yeah, I I think that I've been able to work with Mike on the ground too in Honduras. And, you know, one of the things that he is very consistent with is he's talking to, to me about the importance of having an assessment center. And that was one of the things that is so is often lacking in a lot of this work to to take six to nine months or however long it is, maybe 30 days, maybe 60, whatever the right number is to really assess these kids to say, what is the best for this child right now? And, it, it, you know, and that is something that I think we're, if we're honest with ourselves, we absolutely need to do that with with a lot of these kids who are totally, some of them are absolutely totally broken. Some of them are from family settings that have been completely 100% abusive. And so if you put them in another family, it would not be healthy at that point for whatever reason. You know, and there's, there's, uh, there's so many. I mean, for every child, there's a different situation, right? So... And a different personality and a different uh, individual. So I, that's something that I've, I've seen him not just talk about this stuff, but on the ground when it's just the two of us sitting across the table, he's just, you know, 100% consistent with everything that he's saying to any, you know, global audience that he will be speaking to. So that's, again, something that really respect, but also, you know, it's something that you can say something on a podcast, you can say something on a conference stage, you can say something in a book. But when you're really doing it in the practice, when you're doing it on the ground, that's really where you start seeing, okay, this is consistent 100% across the board. So that's that's something that I think, as we've talked about on the show a lot, so many of the people that have the, the really the posture, I think, that, that Mike has comes from doing it both at the theory level and the practice level. Yeah. Right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. The other thing, one last thing I wanted to mention to you, you know, I think the two kind of main things that he talked about um, throughout the interview was residential treatment and mission trips. But in that, he's also highlighting an important, absolutely, absolutely important fact um, when he talks about that. It's the relationship that helps kids get better. And we touched upon that even in our refugee crisis series, when we're talking about resiliency, and we're talking about um, the facts that we know, and the reason that resiliency exists is oftentimes because a child has that one person, or that one solid, committed, um, consistent, reliable relationship. And um, whether that's in a residential treatment facility, or a foster care setting, or an adoptive family, or a birth family setting, um, that when children have that consistent and reliable relationship, that often sets the foundation and creates the foundation for a child to be able to heal and to thrive in whatever environment that they're in. And so I think that was, um, for sure important on that.
2: Absolutely. Well, you know, this, this brings us, uh, back to the uh, Phil and Dr. Karen recommend segment of the show. And today uh, I'm actually going to close out the show with a couple recommendations. The the first recommendation is a book, Smarter, Faster, Better by Charles Duhigg. He wrote The Power of Habit as well, which is one of my favorite books uh, reading, I think last year, a couple years ago when I read that. This is another great book that just really talks about how we can uh, not only be more productive, but be uh, just, Better in what we do, and to come, it has all kinds of different ways that that uh, we're able to do that. He uses story, um, and it's something that I, I, I recommend you go out there and get to, to really start thinking through, um, you know, thinking differently. You know, a lot of a lot of things that it, that it talks about. You know, one of the stories I remember was just creativity and in kind of thinking outside the box and. And it was talking about the movie Frozen and how that was made. And and the songwriters were really just struggling on what the story was about and and they wanted to make sure that the songs had, you know, were really talking about what the story. And this girl goes, Really, I think what this story is about is is uh, a girl that just says, Forget it, I don't I gotta stop worrying about what other people think about me, I just gotta let it go. And, <laughs> and for you to for those out there, you know that became the Academy Awards song, but What was, I didn't know about it was it started with her in a park with her husband and she just got on a park bench or a table and just stood up on it and started singing what became the chorus. It was just words coming out of her mouth and her husband records it. And then they take it to the team, and then the team listens to it, and it changed the direction of the the movie. It changed the direction of the song, and it was just to be thinking about things in that way. To, that it's not always, you know, what's the obvious. It's not always the formula. It's it's something that we need to kind of dig deep sometimes, and, and to be seeing. So that's kind of one of the the things that he talks about in that book, but. But there's so much more to it and um, strongly recommend that. And the last one is just more something that sometimes you learn what to do by learning what not to do. And I think this is a show that is one of my favorites and I'm watching through it from start to finish. Um, Again, I've seen it piecemeal over the years and I'm sure many of you out there have seen it. It's called The Office. Um and I hope if you haven't seen it, you're in for a treat. It's fantastic, funny, irreverent, but very funny show that I think does teach us what not to do, and then hopefully we can learn how to lead through learning uh some of the ways that we shouldn't be leading. So that's something that uh is is a great uh Steve Carroll is the the boss in that. It's got a great cast, and so strongly recommend the Office as well. Um, Well, with that, I I hope you have a great rest of the week. I hope that you take what you've been learning um, on this show, what you learned from Mike, what you maybe learned from, from Karen and I talking here, and use it to love orphan and vulnerable children more and more each and every
0: day. Thanks a lot. Have a great week.